Let us pray. Come now, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of these, your faithful, who have gathered here out of love for you, and may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Next Sunday, as we begin the season of Advent, uh, part of our liturgy will change, uh, liturgy meaning the order of worship will change, and we will participate in a more formal style of Holy Communion. It will have uh, more of the traditional readings. <clears throat> There's an interesting thing that happens in the midst of that order of worship. And what happens is there's a point where we proclaim, sometimes we sing, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. So it is called the mystery of the faith. And I get it. I get why it's called the mystery of the faith. Uh, I mean, well, I understand that Christ died. Okay. I get it that Christ is risen. What I'm struggling with sometimes is that Christ will come again. You know? I mean, what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean when we say Christ will come again? The parousia, the word, the Greek word that means the coming of Christ, well, I mean, We've had the advent, right? Isn't that advent about the birth of Christ? And then there's the apocalypse that when in that second advent Jesus arrives that the world will end as we know it. And you know how some preachers preach about that, don't you? Perhaps Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica has something that can help us make our peace with this mystery. So I need to say something here. The sermon series has been thinking through it. And we've struck the word thinking. And I think that might be a mistake. I have learned from Father Richard Rohr that the dichotomies that we set up in our world oftentimes don't really work so well the right and the wrong, the good and the bad, the yes and the no, and that that gets us into trouble. So I want to say that while we struck a line through that thinking through it, that was in an effort to get us out of our heads and into our hearts. But we need both. We need to be able to think through things. I think that's one of the things I cherish about our church and our UCC tradition is that we invite people to think intellectually about their faith, but we also need to think through it. We need to have our understanding of God's presence in our hearts and in our souls and even in our bodies, right? And so I want to say that as we talk through this today, I'd like you to continue to remember that we're not free from thinking. We just want to de-emphasize it in an effort to get us to deal more with our hearts than with our heads. Because, you know, we're comfortable in our heads. We, we like to, we're, we're real comfortable in our heads. And so we've got to cultivate this growing understanding of our hearts. To engage the mystery of our faith means that 
we cannot put these things, thinking and thanking, up against each other. In this epistle, there's evidence that Paul had conflicting emotions about the people at, regarding the new church in Thessalonica. On the one hand, he was joyful and satisfied by what God had accomplished there. On the other hand, he had some concerns, real concerns, about the perils in which the new Christians in that church were living. Some of the people apparently believed that Jesus Christ was about to return momentarily, imminently, and had given up their jobs and had become disorderly. Some worried about what had happened to their loved ones who had died before Christ had returned. Many were being persecuted by Gentiles, as well as Jews who were solidly locked in to the Jewish tradition and didn't like all the new, broader things that were going on, the welcoming of proselytes, the welcoming of women, the welcoming of pagans into the new faith. And some of those outside of the church remained very hostile toward Paul. And several had the... Uh, unfortunate tendency to return to their pagan roots. Well, unfortunate to Paul and how he saw it. So Paul writes this letter primarily to comfort and to encourage those who were suffering. He also wanted to express his thanks and give encouragement to the believers who were remaining faithful. In addition, he wanted to defend themselves against the attacks that he was undergoing. And he also called for the followers of Jesus to remain faithful, even though they were being persecuted, and begged them not to return to their pagan roots. He clarified the matter of the perceived imminent return of Christ and the fate of Christians who die before Christ's return. Now, please understand it's apparent that Paul took the fact of Christ's return for granted and did not feel compelled to try to prove it and believed in a real return of the same Jesus who had lived on earth. This was his context in which he was operating when he wrote this letter. So what do you think we ought to say about this? Because the parousia the advent, the second advent of the return of Christ into the world didn't happen as Paul expected, right? They waited, they waited around, they waited some more, they wrote letters, they formed a church, and it didn't happen the way they expected. Not in his lifetime, and evidently not in ours either. Now, that's not to say that the world won't end as we know it. Upon our individual deaths, the world will end for us as we know it. And if there is a cataclysm, as is happening around our world, and natural disasters as well as wars, the world ends as people know it. I, I have to think that the people of Israel and Gaza, especially Gaza, with all the bombings there, their world has ended as they know it, right? The world also ends as we know it if someone we love dearly dies or we lose our job, or the person we love uh, you know, decides to leave us, right? So there's all kinds of ways that the world ends uh, as we know it. 
So I want to talk about what's going on here in this letter and what it means for us. So the challenge is for us to broaden our understanding about what it means to say Christ will come again. To engage the mystery of Christ coming again. Could it be, might it be, that Jesus Christ is continually coming into our world, into our lives, into our hearts? Jesus said he was going away and he would return, and he did at his resurrection. Countless observations, countless reports of the risen Christ in the midst of all, okay? And maybe that has continued to happen again and again and again, that Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, is constantly coming into our world and our lives. And when we say Christ will come again, we are proclaiming that Christ is constantly coming to us, to be with us, to be within us, between us, beyond us, to belong to us, transforming us and the whole of creation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And to recognize that as a possibility, it doesn't take away the mystery, but recognize as a possibility, is to continue uh, to, to begin and, and, and to live in a place of gratitude. How can you not? If you have a sense that Christ is constantly coming to you, how can you not be grateful for that? Right. Although sometimes Christ's coming is challenging or the Holy Spirit's coming is challenging. Uh, so uh, still, it is a beginning of a place of entering into gratitude or thanksgiving. So that kind of gratitude, however, requires mindfulness and good habits. Thanking through it. The it being whatever you are going through be it good or bad, is a choice. And that requires discipline. And that requires mindfulness to attend to it. It is there in that place of this letter that we heard read today that Paul moves to instructions for the individual follower to rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, which is not a small task. I'm not saying that it is. Not for the people of Thessalonica, not for us today. So Paul says the first step toward gratitude is to rejoice. Not just rejoice, but rejoice always. Actually, the original translation from the Greek is the one word, rejoice. A lot of people think that the shortest scripture in the New Testament is Jesus wept. It's actually not. It's Paul's letter where he says, Rejoice, his first instruction to us. And then Paul says, pray continually, all the time. And in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they developed what was called the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you were just supposed to repeat that over and over and over until it became part of your breathing, right? Now, I personally am grateful that the Western church didn't adopt that practice. But. but prayer and gratitude go hand in hand, however you pray, whether you dance, whether you sing, 
whether you are able to solve a problem, to make something happen, uh, that becomes a prayer. And the prayer connects the prayer with the giver of all good gifts, with the giver of every gift. And finally, Paul encouraged believers to give thanks in all circumstances. This may be the hardest one. Because there are moments when being grateful or giving thanks is not only not our natural response, but it's even hard, counterintuitive. It's, it's not something we even feel like doing. And so we come back to this idea of personal self-discipline and developing a habit. Finally, Paul encouraged believers to give thanks. Oh, sorry, I already said that. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, if you are rejoicing on a regular basis and praying as much as you can, then gratitude and giving thanks will follow. Now, this is, I think, tremendously challenging for all of us. And so we have to practice, we have to have discipline, and uh, we have to do what a friend of mine who is a, 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 a therapist told me one time. She said, you need to quit having a lazy brain. You need to not have a lazy brain, which is to get into that place of woe is me, you know, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm going to eat some worms. Y'all know that childhood thing? I mean, to be in that state of, you know, this is bad, this is really bad, it's really, really bad. You know, I'm bad, I'm really bad, I'm really, really bad. Uh, to stop the lazy brain and to be able to say, okay, I'm going to mope around for about an hour and then I'm going to be done with it. I'm going to set it aside. I'm going to be done with it so that I can move on into a new place and then begins the movement toward giving thanks in all circumstances. Amen. Among other things that make up the beauty of Paul's letter here is that Paul not only offers individual instruction to the followers of Jesus, but also Jesus Christ instructs them into communal responsibilities, that it's our responsibility as people who are part of this community whether online or on site. It's our responsibility to um, live in community, to bring people into community, to help people with their responsibilities, helping each other to belong and enter into community that can be transformative. Paul reminded them that all believers were responsible to minister to one another. This is one of our primary responsibilities. Those who neglected their daily duties needed help to re-engage. Those who were timid or tended to become discouraged easily or despondent or worried or sad more easily than most needed help to press on. Those who had not yet learned to lean on Jesus Christ for their needs, who were spiritually weak, were worthy of special support from us. And above all, the Thessalonians were to be patient, to be patient with one another and with all people and not to repay them with retaliation or evil. Turns out that non-retaliation for personal wrongs is perhaps one of the best evidence of personal Christian maturity. As challenging as all this is, if we live this way, caring for each other in community, 
then individually rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks, though you can do that communally too, we do it every time we worship, we will become conscious continually of our dependence on God, conscious of God's presence always with us, conscious of God's will to bless us. And that creates gratitude. The true offering of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians um, I found in Diana Butler Bass's reflection uh, about Christ the King Sunday. She uses the older language for that this Sunday. Christ the King was the original language of this Sunday. And Christ the King Sunday was established in the late 1900s by Pope uh, the middle uh, 1900s during World War II uh, when Pope Pius XI uh, was trying to establish a Sunday when people reflected that the world is not the king, Christ is the king. And, uh, and so it's a later addition to the church year. Well, y'all know when we sing the Lord's Prayer, we sing your kingdom come. Well, Dinah Butler, Butler Bass wrote about how years ago she saw a thread on Twitter ridiculing theological terminology changing kingdom to kingdom. And you may wonder why we do that. Well, I'm going to tell you. The complaints called to mind uh, to her when she first encountered a prayer using kingdom and remembered worrying about that it was a sort of watering down of the robust vision of Christ the King. Uh, diminishing the power of Christ. Bass then explains what theologian Ada Maria Isasi Diaz recalled originally when she originally heard kingdom from a Catholic sister. But to her, to Isasi Diaz, to her, uh, this seemed a good alternative to the word kingdom, a word that was fraught with colonial oppression and imperial violence. Jesus, she wrote, used kingdom of God to evoke an alternative order of things, God's order of things, over and against the po political context of the Roman Empire. Bass then explains that kingdom is a corrupted metaphor in the Christian church. It's often used... Uh, and has been used throughout history to make, it, to make Christendom into a political kingdom, a kingdom, a political kingdom on earth. And Christians have often failed to recognize that king, kingdom was an inadequate way of speaking of God's governance. It was not a call to set up our own empire. Isasi Diaz argues that kingdom is an image from her own culture, la familia and that the liberating family of God working together for love and justice is a metaphor much closer to what Jesus intended. Then Bass makes this important connection, and you need to hear this. This is really, really good, and it's really, really important. It turns out that... Um, Isasi Diaz, again, her metaphor, kingdom, echoes an older understanding. 
that is found in the medieval theology in the work of St. Julian of Norwich. Julian wrote of our kind Lord. Only kind was in the medieval, K-I-N-D-E. Our kind Lord. It's a poetic title for sure, and it summons this idea of Jesus as gentle, but that was not it. It was a radical phrase because the word kind in medieval English did not mean nice or pleasant. In medieval English, the words kind and kin were the same, so to say that Christ is our kind Lord is not to say that Christ is tender and gentle, although that can be implied, but to say that Christ is kin, our kind. Christ is our kind. This is a subversive deconstruction of the image of kings and kingdoms, replacing forever the pretensions and the politics of earthly kingdoms with Jesus calling forth a kingdom. And this is our good news. So that when we rejoice in Christ, when we pray to God, and we give thanks that Christ will come again, and we go out into our city on Sundays of service and feed the unhoused, the poor, the hungry, and give them blankets and coats for the winter, Christ has come again. And when we do these things, we draw close to God who blesses us and fills us with gratitude, and Christ has come again. Paul was confident that God would do this work in the Thessalonians and consequently in us. Paul was clear that this was the work of the Holy Spirit. God's sanctifying work would be done in us, meaning that we, you and I, will be made holy. We will be set apart as sacred, consecrated, blessed. And when that happens, Christ comes again. That's the good news for us this day. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.